Welcome to the Amber Mack Show. I'm Amber Mack. Today's episode is all about vaccines, how they're made, how they're tested, and how they're an important tool in the fight against COVID-19. Joining me to discuss this topic further is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, an infectious disease physician and scientist based in Toronto. Before we get into that conversation, here's a message from our sponsor. The Amber Mac Show is powered by TP-Link. TP-Link is the number one provider of consumer networking devices that remove wireless pain points in your home. So you can live, work, and play in a connected and smart way every day. Vaccines have been around for decades. So let's start here. Can you talk about the process to develop a vaccine, including all of the phases? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, certainly you've got to start off before you even test these in humans. There's a lot of laboratory work that, that's done. Uh, and once you have a, a product and it's tested in the laboratory uh, on, on non-human animals, you start off with your, your human clinical trials. And the first human clinical trial is called a phase one clinical trial. Usually you enroll you know, in the tens of people. So you probably see anywhere from 20 to 50 to 70 people enrolled in these trials. And really you're looking to find the right dose. You're also looking to see the safety of the uh, vaccine that you're using, and you can even measure some immune markers to see if your vaccine is doing what it's supposed to be doing. If everything looks good, you move on to a phase two clinical trial where you typically enroll you know, a couple of hundred individuals. And again, you're also looking to see if it's safe in these individuals. And then you're really looking at the immune system. Like, is the immune system doing what it's supposed to be doing uh, if it's given uh, uh, this vaccine? If everything looks safe and looks like it might be effective in, in those phase two clinical trials, you move on to a much, much larger clinical trial. It's called a phase three clinical trial. Uh, and these are the ones where you're enrolling tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. So, for example, in the Pfizer vaccine trial, they enrolled 43,000 people. Typically, they're designed in a way where you give half the people the vaccine, half the people a placebo. No one knows who's getting what. So you're, you, that's called a blinded clinical trial. Uh, and, and essentially what you're, you're doing is you're looking at the safety of the vaccine when it's given to thousands and thousands of people. And you're also looking at the efficacy of these vaccines. You know, does it actually protect people when it's used in more of a real world scenario when you've got so many people, uh, enrolled in these trials? And, you know, at the end of the day, you can, you can get some, answer some very important questions from these clinical trials. And then, you know, once that, once those trials are over, if you want to get this to market, you have to submit them to independent government bodies. Those are, you know, for example, Health Canada here in Canada, the FDA in the United States. And, and they'll either give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down based on, uh, based on the data. Sometimes if they give it the thumbs down, they want additional studies to be done before they give it the thumbs up. But that's basically the process. I, before I stop, I know I'm blabbering on and on. Once it's approved and it's released into the market, there's, it doesn't stop there. There's what's called post-marketing surveillance. So there's formal mechanisms to really see how do these products work in the real world setting, not in a trial setting, but in the real world setting? And, you know, are there side effects that you just can't measure when you enroll tens and tens of thousands of people? Are there you know, more rare side effects, for example, when you have hundreds, or thousands, hundreds of thousands of people or even millions of people getting this product? So there's formal mechanisms to detect that as well. I don't need to tell you this, but uh, if you look at the history of vaccines, typically it takes years before they get out to the public. What's different in 2020? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, uh, I think it's important to note that vaccination studies for coronaviruses started ages ago, right? This started with SARS in 2003 and 2004. So there was a lot of work looking uh, at vaccines there. And then, of course, there was more work on vaccines related to similar coronaviruses 
with uh, this other coronavirus, MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, that came out that that was only discovered you know, about a decade after that. So it's not like this just started, you know, five minutes ago with COVID nineteen. The other interesting thing is we're using mRNA vaccines uh, with with COVID nineteen. We certainly know the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are using mRNA technology. That's also not new. I mean that that type of platform has been used for well over a decade looking at, uh, uh, for example, cancer therapeutics and looking at vaccination programs for other infections that aren't COVID-19. So this platform has been around for a long time. Now, it's true. No mRNA vaccines have actually come onto market, but it's not like this technology was invented, you know, five minutes ago. Like this is this this has been around for a long time and you actually have a lot more uh, highway miles with this and more safety uh, data than, than what many people are aware. When when you when you get to COVID nineteen, uh, you know, obviously we heard about this issue in uh, many people heard about this in early January, and more and more people were aware that this was an issue uh, as twenty twenty sort of carried on. Some of these companies who were working on vaccines started very very early on, and uh, and you know they start they they got their um, we call the preclinical work done. Uh, perhaps in, in, in February, because the human clinical trial, the phase one clinical trial started in March. So they didn't cut any corners. They did the requisite phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. Uh, some of, you know, Pfizer, for example, has been approved in Canada by Health Canada. We know Moderna is under, uh, Health Canada is looking at that data. So it's like, you know, this is the process. This is how a vaccine or a drug comes to market. This is the process. Still, if we look back at uh, 2019, we know that the World Health Organization named vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health. Why do you think there is so much fear? Oh, God, got an hour. <laughs> this, uh, I think it's, 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 I think like anything else, it's complicated and I think it's nuanced. And certainly some component of this is just people who are concerned about what they put into their body. I think there's just a healthy concern about, you know, taking in a medication or taking a drug or taking a vaccine and just people have some unanswered questions. There obviously is a major component of misinformation and pseudoscience that is amplified online that is driving, uh, you know, human behavior and, and is, you know, setting unfortunate barriers up to people getting vaccinated. But I don't think that explains it all. I think it's probably, you know, multifactorial. I hate that word, but I really think that's the appropriate word here. And 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 just because and all because it's multifactorial, I don't think there's going to be a one size fits all approach to combating vaccine hesitancy and misinformation and pseudoscience that that's amplified online. I think we probably have to take a more holistic approach to combating that. It's interesting because I'm old enough to remember the early days of the internet and social media when we truly believed that this was going to be a platform where all of a sudden everybody could have access to information. And that, of course, included information about science. And yet what we've seen in research over the past couple of years is the more time someone spends on social media, the more they tend to doubt the facts, especially when it comes to things like vaccines. Uh, how hopeful are you that there can be a bit of a shift? Uh, I, I don't mean to be doom and gloom here, but I'm not hopeful. I really am not. At least in the short term, I'm not hopeful. Uh, you know, I'm a late adopter, for example, to something like Twitter. I only joined Twitter about a year and a half ago, and mainly because I was pressured by my colleagues to join for professional reasons. And it is astounding 
to watch misinformation form before your eyes and amplify and spread before your eyes. Like you can watch this happen in real time and it is just absurd. I'm not optimistic at all that we're going to get this under control, at least throughout the course of this pandemic. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> keyword maybe, with longer term solutions and with, you know, with really ensuring that high caliber information and quality information is available on social media platforms, uh, we can do some good. But I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I know that many of these social media platforms like Facebook and, and a few others are taking steps to improve this. But there is a long, long way to go. And it's interesting, uh, probably one of the most disturbing things I've seen that you've tweeted out is about a Health Canada message warning people not to buy a counterfeit COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, it, it feels odd to me that you even have to say this. Yeah, exactly. It's like, is that a thing? <laughs> like, really? We have to say this publicly? Like, maybe you shouldn't buy a vaccine being sold by some random person? Like, this is... This is absurd. But you know what? This is the world we live in. And maybe some people think that that might be a, a reasonable thing to do. And maybe they might think that they're getting a reasonable product and can and jump the queue. But of course, you know, in Canada, for example, yeah, we, we have access to vaccinations. We we know the programs have started. It's, it's going to slowly rev up. But eventually, everyone who wants one will, will be able to have one. And of course, it's free. And no one's going to have to pay out of pocket for this. It's going to be available to everyone in the country. So there's no reason to to want to get a contraband or uh, you know an illicit or uh, you know vaccination and uh, you know I'm sure some people are going to do it anyways and and I'm not sure what to say about that but I, I you know this is the state that we're in in, in late 2020 where, where we have to have those conversations. A couple more questions for you, especially as we talk about 2021. I wanted to start with Canada being at the top of the list in terms of vaccine pre-orders. We've seen this news over and over again. What's the strategy here? This is really interesting because, quite frankly, we are relying on foreign companies in foreign countries to produce and ship vaccinations to us. We do have some capacity in Canada, but we didn't harness that capacity. And of course, it's not like a light switch, like you can turn it on. That takes, you know, years and years of developing the capacity to to create and produce vaccines. While there is some of that here, there certainly isn't enough of that here. We can couch that and discuss this after the pandemic, because that's a strategy that needs to be bolstered for the future. But we're not in that state now, and it's going to take a while for that to gear up. So we're basically relying on other other companies in foreign countries to produce vaccines and send them to us in the context of an insatiable global appetite for these vaccines. So what Canada did was they correctly betted on several promising vaccines months ago before we had any of the data demonstrating promise. And they basically tried to get access to, well, we have uh, seven different vaccines. Now, some of those vaccines might might never make it to market, but it's clear that some of them are. Pfizer. A Moderna is probably not too far behind. Perhaps AstraZeneca will make it, and maybe the Johnson and Johnson product will too. So it's not it's not quite clear. But but they you know, credit where credits due. I mean, they got us access to these programs. We were hearing that these vaccine programs might start in the first quarter of 2021, which to me means March. But here we are in the middle of December. We're getting shipments of the Pfizer vaccine, and programs are starting to gear up across the country. So something right happened, and uh, you know it, it's going to be slow but it's actually starting and it's real and it will do a lot of good. 
Perhaps I saved the most important question for the last. If we look to 2021 and there are people listening right now who are excited and optimistic that vaccines are here and they're coming, but at the same time, they're concerned. I'm thinking of parents who aren't sure about their kids going back to in-person school is one example. What is the plan for 2021 in terms of the rollout, in terms of the priorities? What would you say to people who are, are worried about the months ahead? Yeah, certainly if we think about December of 2020 and the very early parts of 2021, it's not going to be pretty. It's really unfortunate, but it's, you know, there's a large burden of infection in the communities uh, in, in much of much of Canada, and we're watching healthcare systems stretch beyond capacity. Like it's it's a really tough time. Um, as these vaccine programs roll out, and it's going to take time, like it's going to take months, but as they roll out and as more and more people get vaccinated in a data-driven and equitable manner, uh, targeting the highest priority people first, I think we're going to start to see some early benefits. So for example, people who live and work in long-term care, we know long-term care sadly accounts for about 80% of the 13,000 deaths in Canada. We can protect those populations we can do tremendous good. It's not going to solve all of our problems, but it's going to do tremendous good. And we can do that very early on in the 2021 calendar year. And with time, meaning months and months and months, as more and more Canadians are vaccinated, I think we're going to start to see things get better and better and better as the year progresses. And there's going to be a point in the year, it might be the late summer, it might be the early fall, where vaccine programs are basically, you know, at a, at a state where anyone who wants a vaccine can get a vaccine. And I think we're going to start to see a shift towards what we remember 2019 looked like. And, you know, I'm not quite sure how long it's going to take, but it's going to happen. I think 2021 is going to start off on a very sour note, but throughout the year, it's going to get better and better and better. It's just hard to know when it is going to happen because a lot of this is dependent on when we get access to these vaccines and how quickly we can gear up these vaccine programs. Before today's essay, a word from our sponsor. The Amber Mac Show is made possible thanks to our partners at TP-Link. As one example, a TP-Link Deco mesh network can work together to cast stronger, more reliable Wi-Fi throughout your whole home, so you never lose your connection as you move from room to room. For more information, visit TP-Link online. Now for today's essay. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have arrived, and with them, the hopes of billions of people around the world. As of this writing, more than 75 million people have contracted the coronavirus and about 1.7 million people have died. The coronavirus pandemic has been an unparalleled global health emergency. And as we previously discussed, one that has fundamentally affected our way of life and one that will continue to affect our lives for years to come. Unfortunately, you can't have a conversation about vaccines these days without having a conversation about anti-vaxxers. People who stand in opposition to vaccination and laws mandating certain kinds of vaccination. Why would anyone be opposed to medical interventions that have dramatically reduced infectious diseases worldwide and improved life for billions? Well, there are various reasons, including misguided beliefs about science and a twisted take on individual rights. Fringe beliefs and conspiracy theories have been around since there have been any beliefs and theories. And this particular one has been around since the 18th century, when religious leaders dismissed vaccines as the devil's work. Those beliefs were encouraged in the late 1990s by a since-debunked paper by a former doctor named Andrew Wakefield, linking the MMR vaccine to autism. This catalyzed and encouraged those with anti-vax perspectives. 
The social internet then turbocharged the spread of these ideas and beliefs, and like a virus itself, spread to the point that they've contributed to a resurgence of entirely preventable diseases, particularly in the West. Putting a dent in generations worth of progress made by medical professionals and scientists. Here's an example from the National Center for Biotechnology Information. Though once eliminated, measles outbreaks are becoming increasingly common. Since 2014, public health officials have observed an increase in vaccine opposition throughout the United States, primarily concentrated in major metropolitan areas. The World Health Organization, as we just discussed, called vaccine hesitancy a top health threat in 2019. Having lived through 2020 and going into 2021, I think they may have been on to something. On previous episodes of The Amber Max Show, we explored how social media algorithms fundamentally shape reality for billions of people and openly questioned how social media platforms deal with both misinformation and disinformation, terms that sound the same but aren't the same. Misinformation is something that is untrue and spreads, leading to people having beliefs that are out of step with reality. Disinformation is something that is untrue, that is put in the water supply on purpose in order to destabilize. The anti-vax movement is the result of both, and the consequences are deadly. Like many other things, vaccination has become a vector for the continued and continuing political polarization in many Western countries. Even though it has connected us and permitted us to use our voice in the public square, the social internet has also augmented the spread of misinformation, disinformation, and very harmful rhetoric, underscoring the power and the persuasiveness of the technology that surrounds us. Now, I'd like to be optimistic about the world, and especially the digital world, which has given me so much and connected me to so many, but there is a large gap between how we want things to be and how they actually are. Before we started making this show, I thought about the kinds of messages we wanted to get out there and what kinds of conversations we wanted to start. Technology, the internet, and social media have been very good to me, and my lifelong interest in them has given me a livelihood and a platform. But having a platform is kind of pointless if you don't use it to try to make things better. Now, I'm not telling you to believe what I believe, but if we've done our jobs, we might want to think a little more critically about how and why we use the internet and how and why information is presented the way it is. We might also want to remember the early goals of the internet. This was not a platform to promote individualism, but instead it was meant to be a platform to bring people together to further improve the world. As you take a break over the holidays, I hope you can spend some time thinking about that goal and we can inch towards moving forward together with hope, kindness, and yes, science. The Amber Mac Show is produced by Amber Mac Media. And if you like our show, please rate us in your favorite podcast store. Thanks for listening.